Hey, church family, good morning. How are you this morning? Doing well? All right, that was a pretty lackadaisical response. I need a little more, okay? How are we doing this morning? Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. You know, I, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but typically after our worship, uh, you know, I'm so moved by the Spirit. And, and it always said that um, if this worship didn't move you this morning, it may be that your uh, kindling's a little wet, you know, because you got to have that fire. And so I've been asked this morning um, to come up and read the passage that we're going to be studying today. Um, let me go ahead and give it to you. It's 1 Corinthians Five. If you'll turn to that chapter with me in your Bible, I'll give you a moment to do it. It's a letter from Paul to the Corinthians regarding a pretty confronting passage. It's a, it's a little tough to read, and so I'm really glad I'm not going to have to preach on it. I'm so glad Austin's going to do the heavy lifting. And so um, as you uh, turn to that, would you guys stand with me? I do things a little bit differently. Um, when I'm reading the Bible, we, I ask everyone to stand out of reverence for the Lord. So when you get to that chapter, go ahead and stand. I'll wait just a moment so we can read it together. And I am actually reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So if your version is a little bit different, don't be dismayed, okay? It's all the same. Um, but let's go ahead and start. This is a, the word of the, the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated by the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. In other versions there I've seen it says, and you are boastful. And, and shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And one who is present with you in this way, I already pronounce judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I, I am with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, hand over, hand over the one, excuse me, hand that one over to Satan for destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the hard confronting part. We're supposed to hand the individual over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved. Your, boast, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Do not judge those, don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from amongst you. This is the word of the Lord. 
Heavenly Father, as we come before you, Lord, we just ask that we just give Austin the wisdom and the spirit is moving in us, Lord, to present this passage in the way that you would have him presented, Lord. We just ask for your blessings upon him and for the teachings that he is going to give. We just ask this in your son's precious name. And all my God's people said, Amen. Amen. No. Yeah. I love the, the holy discomfort <laughs> as you read the passage. Um, Well, that was it. Um, see you guys next week. Uh, just as a bit of an icebreaker, I'll give you some announcements first. Uh, just a couple of things to be aware of in our church body. Uh, thank you, first of all, Ryan, for reading the, the text this morning. Um, one is that we will be doing Go Camp July 26th through the 30th, and that is for kids ages 6 to 12. If you haven't signed up or you'd like to get more information about that, or even maybe you're like, I don't have kids, but i like to help, uh, go see uh, the Welcome Center after service for ways that you can be of help. And then the second thing I want to just talk about before we get into our sermon this morning is that we will be doing a prayer walk on July 21st. July 21st at 7 p.m., um, we will be having our night, our monthly night of worship and prayer, and that's going to be a prayer walk this month. Is that correct, Brandon? All right. He didn't give a reaction, so I was like, oh, no, did we do the wrong announcement this week? Uh, no. So, yeah, it's going to be a prayer walk, and we're just going to go and pray for our community. We're going to be outside of the building and actually praying for the homes in our city as we, as we walk through uh, some of the areas around here. So I think it's an amazing idea, and I think it's a way for us to kind of put hands and feet in our city um, and just allow us to actually trust the power of prayer sometimes more than we actually do. And so 721, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, uh, we'd love to have you out for uh, that. All right. 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, if, if anyone is honest when they read this passage, it makes them slightly uncomfortable. But as we've been in a series about gospel culture, what I wouldn't want to do is promote an idea that is lacking from the entire biblical testimony and witness of what the church is supposed to exist to be. And so this morning as we step into this text, I think it's important for us to ask, what is it that God desires our church would look like based off of this passage? So as we've been talking about this series, a few things we've gone through has been some equations. The first week, we discussed the equation of gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. And so last week, we talked about Paul and Peter in the church of Galatia and how the actions of Peter had actually deviated from the truth of the gospel. It wasn't anything he said but his actual life was a deviation. The way he operated in a specific situation was away from the truth of the gospel and was actually preaching a false gospel. And so what we want to make an observation of in that text is that we as a church can very possibly deny the gospel not by words, but by our actions. The second equation that we will deal with this morning is gospel culture minus gospel doctrine equals fragility. So last week we talked about a really important 
doctrine. And when I say doctrine, I mean teaching. That's what that word means. A doctrine about justification. If you were here last week, we determined the reality of your life and of my life is that we are sinners. And as sinners, we stand guilty before God. Now, if we go to Psalm 2, as we talked about a few weeks ago, we have, in essence, pushed God off the throne of our lives, and we said, we want to rule, we want to be king. And so we stand condemned. We stand as enemies of the kingdom of God, and it is advancing forward. But the gospel is that Jesus' righteousness through his death, his life, death, and resurrection on the cross becomes your righteousness through faith. And this is the teaching, the Christian teaching called justification. That through faith in Christ, you can have the righteousness of Jesus, who is the only Son of God, who gave his life for you, if you believe. And when we do so, we become new creations. No longer enemies of the kingdom, but actually kingdom citizens citizens of the kingdom of God. But sin is more than just guilt. Sin is, is also pollution. And so let me explain what I mean by that. When I was uh, young, I grew up in California. And in California, we would have massive wildfires. Now, the wildfires were one thing, and, and luckily for me, I never lived in a place where I had to evacuate my home, but one thing that would happen regularly is the smoke from the wildfire would actually continue down and, and start to pollute the entire environment. And so to the point where there were days where we had to cancel school or we had to stay inside the building at school because the weather outside, the air quality was so polluted that it could actually damage your lungs if you spent extended time in it. And so what would often happen is what we'd find out is we'd find out, okay, the fire has been stopped. There's no longer a raging and burning fire out there, but the air quality is still not very good, and we still need to wait that out as the air cleans itself out, as the ash dissipates down back into the earth. But that would take time. That, that wouldn't happen when the fire was automatically out. And this is how sin works. Sin is, in essence, a fire that is raging. And in the cross, Jesus rescued us from the fire of sin. He stopped the fire. But the reality is, is there is still smoke that permeates after that. And as the smoke saturates the environment, it can still be very dangerous for us until that has been cleaned up and cleaned out. And so if we were to take this and put this in the terms we've been using, justification, Christ's death, and resurrection on the, Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the grave is stopping the fire for those who believe in him. When we believe in Jesus Christ who does that, it stops the fire. But sin is also pollution. And so justification by faith in Christ clears us of the guilt, right? It's not moral neutrality, but it's the righteousness of Christ. So when we put our faith in Christ, in essence, we're no longer burning or being destroyed. We're, never in we're not in danger of the fire anymore. And I know that that can be taught towards hell. I'm not actually trying to make that connection. But just so you guys know, the fire is no longer burning. 
But we are still and will still feel the pollution of sin in our lives. Just because the fire has stopped does not mean we won't feel the effects of it. Doesn't mean we won't still have some work to do to clean what has been polluted. You and I will still and will still feel the effects. We will struggle with sin for the rest of our lives. And if our sin is not dealt with, if it's not submitted to Christ, it can be damaging and even deadly. Similar to when I was a kid, if I were to go spend those two weeks out in the polluted environment, even though the fire had raged, the smoke was still in the air and that would have been damaging and potentially deadly. And so now we get to another term which we're going to unpack today, and that's the term of sanctification. So we have been justified in the cross of Christ, but there's another aspect of the gospel that we cannot let go of, and that is the fact that Christ is sanctifying his people. To sanctify is to clean the pollution of sin. Sanctification is the lifelong process of submitting to the work of Christ who cleans up all the smoke and who progressively over time purifies us from the pollution of sin in our lives. So what I want us to do this morning is imagine for a second that you're walking on a balance beam and you have a, a rod in your hands and on each end of the rod is a bucket with water in it. And as you walk on the balance beam, over here on the left, we have justification. And over here on the right, we have sanctification. Now, the balance beam is the gospel, and it holds those things evenly. And as we walk, we're holding both justification and sanctification in our hands. So justification on the left side here is the comfort of the gospel. It is Romans 8 verses 1 through 11 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You have been made new because of the blood of Jesus which covers you. You have been leveraged into a position in the kingdom. Right now, because of the justifying work of Christ, it is really true of you that when your faith is in Christ, you are cleared and freed from the guilt of sin and shame. The accuser is silence. Nobody can say anything against you before God because when God looks at you, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ which covers your sins. And he says, righteous, child, son, daughter, loved. Because of the work of Christ in justification, you are now given the grace of acceptance with God and you are leveraged into a position in the kingdom, not by our own work, but by the work of Christ. Christ does that work and when we believe in him, this now becomes true of us. And so that's the comfort of the gospel. But we also need to make sure that we focus upon the call of the gospel the sanctifying bucket over here. This is Romans 8, 10 through 17. If Christ is in you, you have life. And although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit now gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you, he will also give life to your body through his spirit. This is the reality that because of Christ, our body, although sinfully polluted by 
The smoke of sin is now being purified and sanctified to look more and more like Jesus Christ. This is the sanctification call of the gospel, and it is also the work of Christ. We are now given the ability to not only walk in a status of righteousness, but also in continual victory over sin because of the work of Christ in the gospel. Because of the work of Christ in sanctification. Christ in you. You're now given the grace to also be able to imitate Christ. To look like him. But here's what's really, really important. We're still polluted by sin. And so we will never do that perfectly. And so when I talk about a balance beam, what I mean is that our responsibility as people of God is to not fall to one side or the other because to do so is to misunderstand the gospel. If we only focus upon the sanctification aspect of the gospel, it will lead to obedience without justification. It'll lead to a belief that we can earn things or that we have to be good enough. But if we only focus on the comfort side, the justification aspect, we limit the work of Christ to grace without a call. This becomes live however you want. You're under grace. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to. And that's true. Those are good, glorious truths. But without the ideas as well that we are called to be imitators of Christ, our grace is, in a sense, half-hearted. Grace is both comfort and call. The gospel is both comfort and call. To fall to one side or the other of the balance beam is to misunderstand the gospel. What we're going to see happening in the Corinthian church this morning is that they have leaned into one aspect and disregarded, ignored, or been unaware of another aspect of the gospel. They have leaned into the acceptance of God without the call of God to holiness. And this is something that we also have to make sure we get within the cultures of our churches. When we miss the positional identity we've been given of kingdom citizens, though, when we miss that we are co-heirs with Christ because of his righteousness, when we limit the work of Christ to a call for obedience without a sacrifice for our sins, we'll create a culture of legalism, a culture of obligation to obedience without an understanding of how Christ enables us to walk in obedience. You see, this sanctification aspect that we're going to be focusing on today is only possible from a position of communion with Christ. And so we must hold both aspects in our hands. But today, I believe our text calls us to focus on this aspect, the sanctification, the call of the gospel. So gospel culture minus gospel doctrine equals fragility. So here's my, my main idea today. It's this. A church culture that approves of sin under the banner of grace is powerless and does not understand the gospel. So let's go ahead and unpack the text. Let's get into 1 Corinthians 5 for a moment. 
So if, if you had read Scripture, if you had spent some time in the book of Acts, and then you, you kind of worked your way from Acts into Romans, and then from Romans you came to 1 Corinthians, it would be no surprise to you that a letter was written to the Corinthian church. You see, Paul in Acts chapter 18 had planted the church in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is in the city of Corinth and he plants a church. He actually spends a year and a half in Corinth and we see some fascinating things happening in this specific situation. This is actually the first time that a church goes strictly to a Gentile audience. So let me unpack what I mean by that. Paul, his approach to church planting was to go to cities where there was a Jewish synagogue. He would go into that Jewish synagogue and he would unpack the glories of Jesus Christ, who is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Now, hopefully a few Jews would say, yeah, I, I think he's right. I think he's onto something. And they would believe and Paul would plant a church starting with them that would then reach out to the Gentile, otherwise known as non-Jew city. Okay, so that's Paul's normal M.O., well, he does this in Corinth, and he goes into the synagogue, and it's just a bad experience. Everybody's rejecting him. They're disagreeing with him. They're causing uh, up, an uproar in the city, and so he says, all right, that's it. I'm washing my hands of this, and he actually, for the first time, plants a church out of just Gentiles. There's like one Jew in the entire midst. Of, the rest of them are Gentiles. And so it's people that have no understanding of the Old Testament. They have no understanding of Christian, doc or of Christian doctrine at the time. They have no understanding of this God called Yahweh. They're just starting to get it. They're just starting to figure it out. And they're starting with Jesus. And so what we see in the first cor in the Corinthian church is actually, I think, probably the most we can expect to say this would be our experience as well. Like most people who come to faith in Jesus Christ in Western cultures or in cultures that are not Jewish don't have an understanding of the Old Testament when they find out about Jesus and they give their lives. And so this is what's happening in the Corinthian church. They're starting with Jesus and then they're moving outwards to the rest of the stuff that's in Scripture. And so Paul spends a year and a half there. He plants the church. He leaves, but then he hears some reports of some things that are going on to the church, in the church, and he writes a letter. And if we were to sit down this morning and, and read the entire book of 1 Corinthians, we'd find out that the church is an absolute hot mess. Um, like, the church is all over the place. They have... And they have yet to figure out what it means to be a Christian. They have yet to figure out how to walk in the sanctifying aspects of the gospel. In fact, I think that if we could use like 21st century language to like capture the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, it would be, I'm trying to herd cats and dogs over here with this church. Like, that's, it's all over the place. It's a mess. And so Paul's going to come out swinging against these various issues because he believes that God will create a blameless church through the sanctifying work of Christ in their midst. And what he's seeing in Corinth is a church that's not actually living out that reality. You see, they had really and completely and totally understood the glorifying truth that God has accepted us now. We are accepted by God, but they hadn't totally understood what the implications of that meant as kingdom citizens. And so they were living as if they had not met the Lord, even though they had. They were calling Jesus their Savior, but not calling Him their Lord. 
they were enjoying the benefits of being saved, but they were not enjoying the benefits of being saved completely from sin. They had focused on justification, but they had missed sanctification. So on the balance beam, if this side is justification, they had fallen off this way. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. You see, they've got the culture, but their doctrine of the gospel is poor, and so it led to approving of things that no such church should approve of. So let's get into the text. Verses 1 and 2, it says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. All right, so let's unpack the specifics of this sin for just a moment. We have a man who is in the church who is sleeping with his stepmom. Like he's just sleeping with his stepmom. And it's a normal thing. It seems to be well known across the church, at least well known enough that Paul got a letter about it. Paul got a report about it. And he's reaching out to this church and he's saying, hey, you are approving of something that not even the, not even the world approves of. Like that's how, that's how sick this sin was that was taking place in the church. But here's what's important for us to recognize. You see that he says in this text that they tolerated it which means they also knew about it and they were fine with it. In fact, later on when he says, you are arrogant or you are boasting, what he's looking to, what's happening in this church is that there are people in the church who are pointing to this situation and saying, look at how awesome the grace of God is. They can even save this guy who's sleeping with his stepmom. And they were proud of it. They were proud that this was happening in their midst. So it's a continual sin. It's tolerated by the church, welcomed by the church. It's a sin that is not even accepted among the world. It's widely known, but what also seems to be clear from this text is that this man is not repentant of this sin. It's a totally and completely okay thing within the church. But what fascinates me is about this text is Paul's writing is not to the man in sin. His writing is to the church itself. You see, Paul seems to be much more concerned with the way that the church has handled this, boasting about the grace of God instead of looking at the grace of God and its ability to defeat and destroy sin in the life of people. Instead of grieving at sin, they are welcoming it and accepting it. We can almost hear in the background the church saying, look at how much grace we've been given. Look at how much grace we have. We've accepted even this man as a brother. And so Paul pronounces judgment on this situation. His judgment is very important for us. Now here's what I will say real quickly about this text. This text is three sermons long. maybe four. And so I, I'm planning to preach through 1 Corinthians next year, unless the Lord leads me in a different direction. So we will come back to this to focus on some of the nuances of this text, because I don't want to leave you with like, well, I have this question, I have this. Like, we want to get the overall gist of it, 
so that we can see how, as a church, we will not make the same mistakes in our midst. So Paul calls to remove the man from the church. He says to do so with my spirit being with you. So he's saying, hey, I've already pronounced judgment on this. You can go in confidence knowing that this is what I as an apostle would do. Go forward in strength, but also go forward, and he says this, in the power of the Lord. You see, the reason why that's important here is because the power of Christ is to defeat sin. Like, the power of Christ in his resurrection is that he has said that sin, death, the devil, they have no power anymore. I left their power in the grave. They're dead for those who are in Christ. And so now we, as individuals in Christ, if we are crucified with Christ, we can say the truths we learned last week, that it is no longer I who live. My sinful nature, who I once was, died on the cross with Christ. I have been raised to new life. I am a new creation. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. It is no longer I who live, but now Christ who lives in me. I am dead to sin and I am alive to God. And now the life that we live by faith is lived because of the power of Jesus to defeat sin. And instead of being, well, let's go to Romans 5 real quick. In Romans 5, it says that we were once enemies of God. We were enemies of God. But now, because of Christ's work on the cross, we're enemies of sin. And we're working together with God to rid that out of the church. We're not tolerant of sin. We're enemies of it. And then the next thing that Paul says is he says, hand this man over to Satan. And I loved the reaction in the room because I think it's the reaction we should all have when we read that verse. Whoa. What does Paul mean when he says, hand this man over to Satan? Well, what Paul is saying in this passage is don't give this person the comfort of Christ's gospel right now. Don't let them believe that they are saved as they walk unrepentant in this sin. Allow them to walk in the flesh with this. But there's a really important disclaimer there, and I love that Ryan actually picked it out of the text, if you notice his inflection. So that his spirit may be saved. Just like this moment of disciplining this believer, of removing him from the fellowship, was not for the purpose that this person would just be cut off and never be found. It's for the purpose that they would be saved. You see, the, the action of Paul here, the action of the church here, is so that people would understand the grace of God. It's so that people would be saved, so that they would be restored. In fact, if we follow this story through all the way to 2 Corinthians, we'll see that Paul encourages them to welcome this party back in. Like, they've, they've repented. Bring them back. Don't allow them to live in this anymore. Bring them back if they've repented. see, loving rebuke in the church always desires three things. It's repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. The purpose of this is not so that we can go out calling people out and saying, hey, you're a sinner, get out of here. That's not what this is. 
The purpose of this is so that people would be restored to relationship with Christ and to the body. In verses 6 through 8, we see something also that's really important for us to recognize. You see, Paul's going to unpack the gospel for us, but he's going to do so from an illustration about leaven. Or in 21st century language, if you're not into sourdough baking, yeast. So what, what does he mean when he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Well, if, if you've ever made bread before, and, and I know we have some resident sourdoughers in here, that little bit of, okay, well, actually, let's do this. Let's do sourdough starter. It's fun. So when you make sourdough starter, you're making fresh yeast. Like you're making yeast from scratch. And, and what you're doing is you're feeding it a little bit every day, and you're discarding a little bit every day. And as you discard the old, the little bit that's left from the old changes the culture of the entire thing. It permeates through all of it. Now, what Paul is saying here is that when sin is allowed in the body of Christ as unrepentant and unchecked, and we just place a banner of grace over it, that it will permeate through the entire lump and it will change the culture and it will actually be a different thing other than what God has intended for it to be. A little yeast, a little leaven will infect and affect the entire loaf. Slowly but surely, the acceptance of sin would grow and grow until the entire culture of this church had changed from a place where sin is defeated to a place where sin was celebrated. This grievous acceptance of sin within the church walls would imply that the gospel is useless for anything in this life, but will shower us with blessing and joy in the next. You see, do whatever you want is just never the gospel. Do whatever you want be you. That's never the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do whatever you want should not be the culture of a church whose very mission is to communicate the beautiful truth of restoration with God through the power of the gospel. And Paul recognizes that this sin being allowed inside the church will change the entire culture of the church. And so he tells them to cleanse out what is old. But there is a very significant way that he tells them to go about this. Look at verse 7 for me. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. You see, that language is really important. They are not cleansing to attain salvation. They're cleansing because Christ has already given it to them. Their identity of righteous before God's eyes should saturate every aspect of their lives, and it should do so in ours as well. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed, we are justified. We are being sanctified. We can rest in the confidence that these things will happen because of Christ's sacrifice. And when we rest in Christ's sacrifice, we can now actively engage in the work of defeating sin in our lives by the work of sanctification, by faith that Christ will do that work in us. 
see malice, evil. Those were the old identity. And we're going to get into the specifics of what this looks like. But allowing sin to be present and unrepentant is to welcome the old identity back. But our new identity of sincerity and truth, notice that it doesn't say our new identity of perfection. Uh, It doesn't say our new identity of sinlessness. It says our new identity of sincerity and truth. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth cares for the eternal being and will desire to see them come to understand true grace. You see, our responsibility as a church is to be part of the discipleship process with others. And here's what I mean by that. You and I, as we have mentioned before, we're not saved to be individual Christians off on our own doing our own thing. We're saved into the language we've been using has been kingdom. And now we are called to actually walk that out together. But we also have to remember last week's sermon. We have to remember that justification is by faith alone. In fact, if we walk just right over here on the sanctification line, we'll end up creating a legalistic environment. We have to hold it in both hands. We have to walk together in this. This is, I think, one of the hardest things about the Christian life, if I can be honest with you. The ability to say, I'm not enough. (laughs) Like, I just am not. And I need people to help me see where I'm not enough. <laughs> and I, I need people to help me see where, where I'm missing it. Like that level of humility can only come from being a new creation in Christ. You see, Paul tells them, do not associate with unrepentant Christians. Now here's something important. We, we cannot read this text as if you see them in the grocery store, put your head down and walk as fast as you can away. I don't even think we can read this text as remove them from the gathering. Because what is, what is the context of this? Why does he say don't associate, do not even eat with such a one? What's he telling them not to associate as? Don't associate with them as brother and sister. Do not give them the comfort that they are Christian brother and sister with you if they are living in unrepentance and they know about it. But also, I... When we see don't even eat with them, what's the context? The Passover lamb? The communion meal? What is communion? Like, let's look at the sacraments of the church real quick. We'll do this really fast. Baptism and communion. These are really important for us to get. Baptism is the initial welcome that says, I have died with Christ. I have been raised to new life. It's a symbol, a reminder for us as we walk out in victory over sin. I have died with Christ. My old self left in the grave with Christ in those baptism waters. My new self raised to newness of life. And then communion is the continual reminder of that. It's a continual reminder of the body of Christ which was broken, the blood of Christ which was shed for us. And When we get further on in this book, what Paul's going to say is like to to believe that those things exist as just 
nice little fragments or as nice little things you do is actually to deny Christ in 1 Corinthians 11. And so what Paul is saying here is not don't kick them out, don't never see them again. I actually believe what Paul's saying here is say, make sure that they know that they need the gospel. Make sure that they know that they need it and that they don't have confidence in it right now. Don't give them false confidence. Don't give false confidence to someone walking in unrepentant sin. Now, that's a word I've tried to use regularly, unrepentant, because I think it's really, really, really important, okay? Romans 7, we're doing a lot of work here today, but Romans 7 is Paul says this, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? But thanks be to God. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So what Paul is recognizing in that statement, I do the things I don't want to do, I am in sin and I don't want to be in sin and I'm trying to rid myself of it. But I still wrestle with it. This body is wretched. He is repentant in that very statement, owning the fact that he struggles with sin, as every single one of us should. You see, sanctification is not walking perfectly. It's progressively understanding where there's sin in our lives and where we need Christ to cover it and where we need his help to walk in victory over it and leaning out in repentance of that. 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, one of the most misunderstood texts in all of Scripture, I think. It says that if we walk in darkness... We lie and the truth is not in us. But what's the context in 1 John chapter 1? Those who do not confess their sins. Like the confession of sin is the honest openness about who I really am and who Christ really is for me. To pretend as if I am fine and I never do anything wrong and I have to be perfect all the time is to deny Christ's sacrifice for us. So we are not talking about walking in perfection here. What's happening in this text is walking in unrepentance and the church being okay with it. And the church saying, yeah, that's fine. You can be unrepentant. And that's not actually okay for us as Christians. When sin is made aware to us, when, when Christ has convicted us of sin, to ignore it is to believe in a kingdom acceptance without a king, Lord. And so the church here in this text is responsible to help one another imitate Christ, to help one another be sanctified, to lovingly and through relationship, and that's the key word here. The key word is relationship. Paul planted this church, spent a year and a half with them. A few verses before associates as a spiritual father to them. He is not entering into a situation where he has no relationship saying, do this thing. We can never step into places where we're helping one another see each other without building relationship first. To do so is to walk in spiritual pride. 
And so to lovingly and through relationship, our role and our help as a church is to point brothers and sisters to areas where they may be missing sin in their life. And so here in Corinth, we have a church that's filled with gospel culture in a fragmented sense of the term, right? They haven't truly understood the doctrine of the cross. They're accepting, they're loving, they're welcoming one another, and they're welcoming others, but their gospel doctrine was incomplete. You see, they understood justification, but they missed the work of Christ in sanctification. Grace is not just acceptance with God, but it is also Christ in us that empowers us towards Christ's likeness. You see, our world wants this idea of kingdom. They want the acceptance. They want to know that they're okay just as they are. They don't want to change. They want to be and just be okay with that. And that idea permeates into the church. Brothers and sisters, hear me. I'm not attempting to preach this sermon to lay guilt trips on anyone. I'm attempting to preach this sermon to help us to understand that Christ really is powerful enough to defeat sin. Like, submitting to him as king is a good place to be. It's a glorious place to be. Going back to Psalm 2, the word is blessed. Better translated, happy. It's a happy place to be when we're submitting to Christ. You see, we, we want the kingdom, but we don't want the king, but to be justified, but to not want to admit that we need a righteousness outside of us is wrong. We have to be able as believers to admit that we are not enough and that we need a righteousness outside of us. That thinking of, and if, we, if we live without that, if we live without that desire to have that righteousness that's outside of us, we will always self-justify. We will always try and convince people outside of us that we are enough, that we've done enough, that we are righteousness, and when they won't accept that aspect of us, we'll reject them. Because they can't accept who we are. But this is really important for us to get. That if we are submitting to who Jesus is, we're saying, I deserved the cross and he took it instead of me. And so I'm going to walk in his righteousness. And that's going to lead us into a desire to look more like Christ and to imitate Christ. See, when this thinking of self-justification makes its way into the church, it leads to people in the church who are continually plagued with unrepentant sin but don't want to change because they haven't truly recognized that they need the work and identity of Christ in their life. You see, when we know and when we believe that truth of justification, that we've been leveraged into the kingdom by Christ and Christ alone and by faith in him alone, and we can walk forward in victory over sin, knowing that those things don't identify us anymore. We can be honest about where we're missing the mark. We can be honest and, and, and open with our brothers and sisters. But to be a church that doesn't believe in the actual sanctifying power of Christ is to be a church that walks in weakness. When we don't believe that Jesus can defeat sin, 
we, we actually miss an aspect of the gospel that's so important for us. So we need the help of the saints. We need other brothers and sisters to help us see ourselves. I mean, have you ever had such a relationship with somebody that you can just go to them and say, hey, will you help me see where there's sin? And will you just lovingly confront that and call that to account? Now, I think patience is important on our aspect. I think patience as a church is really important. I don't think that we just go ahead and say, ah, they were unrepentant after an hour of finding out about the sin in their life, so kick them out. I don't think that's what's happening here. I, I think what, this is a long process. It's an important process. It's something that we have to take time and walk in patience with, in honesty with one another. We have to allow people, when sin is confronted in their life, the space to actually search their heart. And we also have to be willing as individuals to be honest when maybe we've missed calling somebody out. Like, maybe, maybe we've called something out that isn't really sin, and, and we just didn't like that. And, and so I think being careful doing this in community is wise. We need the help of the saints to help us see ourselves, to help us look like Christ. And we also need spaces where we confess areas that we don't see Christ in our life. I, I had this moment happen just last night. I just, there was some things welling up in my heart that were not of Jesus. And so, well, it was not last night. It was two nights ago, actually. So I went to my wife on Saturday morning, and I just said, I just got to tell you some things that I'm feeling inside. Like, I know that this isn't of Jesus, but I just need to tell somebody that there's part of me that's not of Jesus. <laughs> I just really need to talk about this and get it out. And, and she says at the end of it, okay, what do you need to do? And like that gives me the space to confess that sin and also to say, okay, I'm owning that this is not of Christ in me. I know that. And now I'm going to walk hoping to overcome that aspect of my heart that was wrong. The repentance there mattered a ton. And that matters a ton for us. We're not trying to just kick everybody out who's sinners because if that's the case, then I need to find a new church as a sinner. <laughs> we are trying to, to help people walk in victory and help people walk in repentance and confession of sin. And we are also trying to remind people of their identity in Christ, the comfort of the gospel. You have been saved. The call of the gospel. You are being saved. <laughs> and those are important things for us to hold in our hands and to walk with. So we're, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, the last few weeks we've been gathering in my home with, with a, a few key people, not key people, that's the wrong term. We've just been inviting a lot of people to my home. But the, the point is for leaders of what we will be launching in the fall of gospel community groups to gather and to start to practice the work of being known and walking out the one another's that are found in scripture. And one of the things that happens here is this is the place where we help one another look like Christ, where we remind people of their true identity in Christ, where we remind people of their need for sanctification, but the glorious truth that Christ will sanctify them. It's a place where we actually believe in Christ's power enough to have confidence that he will indeed make us like him. He will. He promises to do so. 
He promises to create in us clean hearts. He promises to make us blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. He promises to do that. And if he promises to do that, then we can lean into the hard work of sanctification knowing that he promises to accomplish it for us. We can actively engage in it trusting him. And so what we need as believers is spaces to be known. And so when we launch gospel communities in the fall, I encourage every single one of you, and I'll be pointing you towards some, (laughs) to get involved in these spaces. It's a space to be known, to be loved, and to be moved towards the gospel in all of its goodness and all of its glorious nature. And maybe you're in here this morning and you don't believe that Christ has given you the power to defeat the sin in your life. And so I have a prayer for you. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief where I don't believe that Christ will do this work. Help my unbelief where I have been victim to sin and I have have no confidence that I can confess this in a safe space. Help my unbelief, Lord. Help me. Surround me with people who will help me to defeat this thing. Help me to look more like you. Help me to be confident to confess and to walk in victory. As I mentioned, we would not be able to get through the whole passage. We did get the main idea. And so what I want to encourage us in as the worship team joins me up here is are, are, we, are we so confident in Christ's justifying work that he has given us a new identity, that he has leveraged us into the kingdom, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? that we can live that out in our relationships by being honest about where we're at, being repentant of our sin, and moving forward in victory knowing that Christ will sanctify his people. And then as a church, are we willing to step into the hard and complex role of helping each other see themselves? helping us see where maybe we're missing the mark gracefully, holding the truths of the gospel of justification by faith alone in our hands, but also the call, the call to imitate Christ and to look more like him. Are we willing to step into those spaces? Are we willing to buy into that level of relationship? Because it matters. It really matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Your word is uh, living. It is active. Sharper than a two-edged sword, Lord. It is piercing this morning. As I, I think in my own life where I have missed the mark and I take comfort in your gospel, Lord. But I also desire to look more like you and I desire that our church would look more like you. Lord, to look more like you is not to ignore sin. It's to take it head on. Help us to do so. 
Lord, and as we become more like you, remind us of the truth that we will sing in this next song, that before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, the great high priest whose name is love, who will forever live and bleed for me, and our names are graven on his hands. Our names are written on his heart. Because of him, because of you, Jesus, we have life forevermore and we can be honest about the things that are before us saying, I don't need this to define me. You define me. Lord, where we don't believe that this is your power to defeat sin, help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. In your name we pray. Amen.